0: Wherever you're finding this podcast or video, we're glad you're tuned in. We're studying life of Messiah, which is what we do each Wednesday night here at Open Door. We're looking at the life of the Lord Jesus using all four gospel accounts from a Jewish perspective. And uh, Ariel Ministries is uh, Dr. Arnold Frutenbaum, if you want to know. Uh, my, my, I guess he'd be my rabbi, DT. I guess he'd be my rabbi, uh, Messianic one. But... Um, <clears throat> We've been studying recently how Jesus has just healed a man that was full of leprosy. We spent a couple of weeks looking at that, and we saw that after Jesus heals him, he tells him to go to unto the priest to, for a testimony unto them, because the rabbis taught that only God could cure leprosy, and Jesus doesn't. And we saw that that was the first of three messianic miracles that we're going to see as we go through the life of the Messiah. And uh, these messianic miracles were things that the rabbis said only the Messiah could do. And then we found that Jesus gets away in praise as he anticipates the next events that would unfold, and tonight we're going to look at that next event. Uh, again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the event we're going to study tonight, and it, as you're going to see, one of the advantages of studying as the, the, the thematic approach that uh, Dr. Frutenbaum uses in Life of Messiah, and going through it as a storyline, we're going to see bringing that Jewish perspective makes a big difference again tonight. And what we're going to read tonight, most of you know the story, probably if you've been to Sunday school length the time, you've heard this story, uh, but probably you've never heard it taught from a Jewish perspective, and hopefully you'll learn some things. We're We're going to get through like the first half of it tonight and then Lord willing next uh, Wednesday we'll we'll finish up. So we're going to be in Luke. Uh, We're going to choose Luke's account again. He gives the most detail, although we will be referencing Mark and Matthew's account as we go through. But we're going to start tonight in Luke chapter number 5. I've entitled tonight's Bible study, Through the Roof Faith. Through the Roof Faith. And I hope you have a faith tonight that is through the roof, you know, um uh, anybody know by just my title what story are we going to study tonight? Yeah, 4.0? Yeah, is that the one where the paralyzed man blow? Yep. Yep. 100%. There you go. Uh this is the story of the the man who's paralyzed it gets let down through the roof. And we're going to study that tonight, and we're going to begin looking at it in Luke chapter 5 and verse number 17, all right? Luke 5, verse 17, the Bible says, And it came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And so we're told this new situation here that Jesus is in a place teaching But if we look at Matthew and Mark's account, we find out a couple different information. Uh, We find out that this was a few days later after he'd healed the the man of leprosy. And we're also told in even Matthew's account uh, that, that this location is in Capernaum. Now remember, Capernaum was the new hometown of Jesus after he was rejected at Nazareth. Remember, we found he moves his ministry headquarters down to Capernaum. Uh, many people believe that the house this occurs in uh, is is Peter's house because remember we remember we read we did the story where Peter's you know they're in the house there and Jesus heals the mother-in-law and all that from and that that is the base of operations. So a lot of people think that the house in question here was none other than than uh, Peter and uh, and. Andrew may have had ownership in it as well but the the Bible tells us that there were so many people we as we read on in the story that were there that the house was packed now what's interesting that Luke tells us um, is who was there Luke is very specific more than the other gospel writers and he pretty much tells us the Pharisees are there the scribes are there the Sadducees are there and they're there from everywhere wow Matter of fact, notice it says that they're there even from Jerusalem. Now, I know some of you tonight may know the geography around, uh, you know, the the historic land of Israel, but uh, remember Capernaum's up there at the top by the Sea of Galilee, and then you got the Jordan River goes all the way down in the Dead Sea, and Jerusalem's much farther south. Uh, So geographically, where Jerusalem is and where Capernaum is, uh, it's about 60 miles Now, 60 miles, oh, that's not very far. Well, start walking. Um, See see how long it takes you if you're doing the old, you know, two-step all the way there, uh, which was the most common way of traveling from one place to another. Uh, It took, on average, three to four days to walk there. Now, that's an interesting thing because um, we find they're all there, and the question is, how did they find out, and we're not totally certain. The scriptures don't give us all the answers, but uh, that's why in Mark's account, it's significant that Mark says this event occurred some days after he healed the leper. So there's plenty of time for word to get out And travel all around, you know how gossip travels or, you know, crazy news travels fast. The human nature is constant. Uh, And gave them time to get from Jerusalem, and they knew that Capernaum was his home place. Maybe they knew about Peter. I don't know, but here they are. Now, we can tell from what Luke tells us that this is not a gathering of the local synagogue Pharisees, which would have been more typical when Jesus would go into a town and he started teaching. A lot of times he would actually first start at the synagogue. But at the very least, when they heard that this new rabbi was in town, it was fairly customary that the locals would show up, the local Pharisees and leaders of the Sadducees of that area. But no, Luke is very specific to tell us that these people were coming from all over the place now the question is why why would these guys walk three to four days and that is a very interesting question I never really uh, you know before I had a Jewish perspective I never even would have thought of that remember that as I started out tonight this event is a direct response to Jesus healing of the leper when Jesus healed that leper that was a messianic miracle And as we saw last week, the response when he did that, the fame of him that went out was more significant than any other miracle he'd performed up to that time. And now we understand why, because uh, they considered it a messianic miracle. Now, if you remember earlier in our life of Messiah study, when we began by studying the life of the forerunner, the, the the ministry of John the Baptist, you remember when John Baptist's ministry was really taking off that early in his ministry or at least when it was becoming more well known remember there was a small delegation of pharisees and sadducees that came from Jerusalem and they came to his his baptizing service remember that we saw that John's ministry had gained the attention of the sanhedrin which was the civil leadership of the, the of the nation underneath roman rule but the Sanhedrin, they, they had heard about John Baptist's ministry, and because John Baptist was all about talking about the Messiah's here and the Messiah's coming, and I'm going to point out the Messiah, it certainly had messianic overtones, and they heard about it, and all kinds of people were there, so they sent out a delegation to go check it out. Now, remember, Dr. Frutenbaum shared with us that in the first century, the Sanhedrin had literal policies about how they handled quote-unquote messianic movements because, if you know anything about history, uh, there were a lot of folks that came and went in Jewish history that claimed to be a Messiah figure. And so they had to kind of figure out is this a real deal movement or is, is it not? So they developed, as the Pharisees always want to do, their little, their little rules of how we're going to handle this situation. And uh, remember, the first step, when they found out about a movement, they, someone of influence said, hey, I think this could be messianic. We need to check it out. The Sanhedrin would meet. They would agree on it, and they'd say, all right, let's instigate step number one, which is the, the, the step of observation. Just take a group generally it was a mixture of Pharisees and Sadducees because that's what the Sanhedrin was made up of and go observe don't ask any questions don't be confrontational just watch that's why, because I remember before I understood Jewish perspective, I remember when I used to study about John Baptist. Remember when they show up that first time after John Baptist gets done baptizing? He turns around and he calls on them fiery serpents and who have let you out of your wicked vial. And he, he, just, he just does a preaching undressing of them. You know, he rips them to pieces and rightly so. And the, I remember thinking to myself back before I understood this, the scriptures say they don't answer a word to him which is not the norm for what the reaction of the Pharisees would be. And um, the reason for it was is that these folks that were coming to check out John Baptist, it was the first stage of investigation. Now, one of the things Dr. Frutenbaum points out throughout the life of the Messiah, one of the phrases, I guess, that I've heard it so much that I, whenever I read it, I can hear his, as he would say, his Brooklyn, Texas accent. You know, he's got a really strange accent because he's Jewish from Brooklyn who lives in Texas. So, you know, have got all of them going. But he, he says throughout the life of Messiah, he says, quote, what happens to the herald will happen to the king. And there's a lot of parallel between how the ministry of John Baptist went in general. You're going to find that the same thing happened uh, to the Messiah himself. But in Jesus' case, the Sanhedrin already knows, they've been aware of Jesus' ministry, but after Jesus heals that leper, that's what kicks off this official investigation into Jesus' messianic claims. And because of what Jesus had just done, they did not send a small delegation like they did to John Baptist. seems to me they sent everyone. I don't know if they had email in those days, or they had a group text, or what they had. But it pretty much, it said, "Hey, if, if if you have any some relationship to the Sanhedrin and you're in good standing, you know, we need you to go check this out." Because they all showed up. That's why in Mark chapter two of Mark's account, which is in Mark two verse number two, the Bible says, "And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch there was no room to receive them. No, not so much about the door." And he preached the word unto them. So there's. No room even to come in at the door. Ever been in a house that's been that packed? I have a, a time or two. We've done some things here at church where you know let's all meet at the Swafford house. You know, um, I know one time we we had I think at Brock's house we well now it is I should it is not Brock's house. Strike the record it is it is the Sanchez home at this point. At the Sanchez home we you've had odd Baptist stuffins at, at that house uh, a time or two and. One time, Alyssa decided to go swimming in the pool when she wasn't supposed to. That happened, and so then Danny went swimming when he wasn't supposed to. Um, that was intense uh, time. Do you remember, you, you remember that, Alyssa? You were pretty little, but you, you remember that. Then you remembered this mighty hand, and you thought, "Well, oh, the Lord saved me." You looked, and there's this bearded guy. No, he didn't have a beard back then. He did not. But any rate, you get into a place like that, I'm not one that likes those kind of crowds. I will always remember, and Matt, you and I will probably both, when I think of it, I think of that train in Hong Kong, I think it was, when, you know, the train stopped and we got on there, and, you know, our missionary friend, who's a big guy, you know, he he knew how to play the game, but Matt and I were about to learn, and... They those doors would stay open, and more people would come in, and everything inside of me said no rational human being would try to get on this train to this point. But as soon as I thought that, I don't know what another hundred of hundred got on the on the thing, and I was very uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. So of course Harmon said I mean, he was laughing at us because he knew it was going to happen. But um, there, there's nowhere for anybody to come in at this house, and it's fascinating that. With all this crowd, and we know now specifically who this crowd is, Mark tells us that he preached the word unto them. These are the, the theologians of the day and the spiritual leaders of the day. And, you know, Jesus said, well, I got you right where I want you. Just like John Baptist did. I think mean, Jesus is preaching. I don't know if he was ripping them quite like John Baptist did. I don't know. Doesn't tell us completely. Um, but as we'll see in this story, initially, they say nothing. They're they're very quiet, and we're going to look at that a little later. Why? Because what we're seeing here is the first stage of the official messianic observation of the claims of Jesus to be the Messiah. Now, I'm going to show you why that's even, why I think that is uh, the right interpretation as we move on in the story. Let's go to verse, uh, read on in the story, verse 18 and 19. The Bible says, and behold, men brought in a, 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 a brought in a bed, a man, which was taken with palsy, and they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in, because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and led him down through the tiling with his couch. I kind of like that, like a big lazy boy coming down, um, into the midst before Jesus. Um, so Jesus is teaching, and my guess is he may have been teaching even out of the book of Leviticus. I'm going to show you that in a minute don't know that for certain. Uh, we were laughing about that the other day, and you know, if anybody can make Leviticus exciting, I'm, the Lord Jesus can. But at any rate, these four amazing men bring their sick with palsy. Now, that word in the Greek literally means just weak in the limbs. We don't know exactly if maybe this man was paralyzed because he had an accident as a child or even as an adult. Um, it tends to give more the idea that maybe he had something today, if I could you know, like multiple sclerosis or muscular dystrophy where the limbs don't work properly to a point where this guy could not get around on his own. Uh, Bottom line, he was paralyzed. And when these guys get to the house, of course they can't get in. And now knowing what you know about who is there, who's blocking the doors? The religious people. The religious leaders are the ones that are blocking the door. Now, I'm sure, knowing the way the Pharisees worked and the Sadducees, that probably they had a pecking order (laughs) and who got the best seats in the house. That's kind of how they rolled. Remember how Jesus would talk about don't go get the best seats for yourself? They literally would do that. So if you were a higher-ranking Pharisee, you know, when you came in, the lower, you know, little peons needed to part the way so you came in you know and you got the better seat and then it kind of worked out so the people at the door were probably the low-level Pharisees maybe the you know the Pharisees in training you know they were e3s or something like that you know Um, if you're not a military church you don't understand that that reference but you know but bottom line was these are the religious people and I thought to myself Isn't it so illustrative of how oftentimes religion and religious people can be the biggest hindrance to people getting healed? It's unfortunate that that can be the way because we're so bound in our rules and sometimes, please, you guys know, I think standards and and Christians should live differently. I'm not espousing that we do whatever you want, but at the same time, do we keep it in perspective? Are are we the hindrance? And I got to tell you, sometimes folks are so committed to their religion now certainly we could use, we could mention the cults today and I think it was uh, Pastor Danny was telling me when you were, was it when you were in Montana that you said you went out there and he's not out there 10 minutes and and who's out there going up down the streets but you know our Mormon friends. And um, of course Pastor Danny cannot help himself and, um, and he gained two friends and he's prayed for them. He's still talking. to Maybe they're watching now. Our dear Mormon friends, please read the New Testament. Um, isn't Jesus enough? Um, but sometimes religion can be the, the biggest adversity. And I thought to myself, because when I write this stuff, I, I think and I just put it in my mind and I think about it and I think if, if, if you had a whole house full of supposedly the most spiritual-minded people and you had a, a man that's teaching, that's claiming to be the Messiah that has already evidenced some evidence that he is and you're at the door and you notice that there's four guys carrying you know uh, the little the bed the couch the lazy boy whatever it is and they're carrying him in and they come up to the door and they say we want to bring this guy he needs help would you not think that if someone who is really spiritual would say you know you need more help than I do let me get out of the way so you can get in to get to Jesus. But that is obviously not what they said. They said, get away, loser. And really, you know, of course, remember from the Jewish perspective of that time, if you had those kind of illnesses, they generally saw that illness was a result of God's judgment on you because you did something wrong. Therefore, you weren't really worthy of any kind of pity or mercy or grace. And they, they just sent them away. I want to make sure as a church and I want to challenge especially you know Wednesday night crowd and you're watching online does it ever even occur to you when you come to a church service that there might literally be somebody there that doesn't know Christ as their personal savior when a church gets more focused on their own issues That rise above in importance level more than a wounded, broken, on their way to hell sinner, we have become like the Pharisees. And I understand, especially in a church our size, you know, by statistical standard, we're moved into mid sized standing of a church but Sunday morning sometimes I, I'll, I'll tell some of you hey were you here Sunday morning? I can't remember if I saw you or not. Now DT I never forget. I keep looking down there saying oh he's here again, he's here again uh, um, but we know, we know most of each other but may we never lose sight of you know whatever job and they're so important I don't want to minimize. I appreciate our junior church workers those of you who are involved in special music whatever you do but never lose sight of the fact that every time you step in here, there could be somebody here and we have had unsaved people consistently in our church over the last month. Let me let you in on a little secret, okay? And don't be like these religious people that were blocking the door and being a hindrance to somebody seeing Jesus and receiving healing. We, we have got to keep our primary mission the most important thing. If you get mad about something, don't play the fool. Take it into a private office. Tell Pastor Danny. You can call him in there and tell him why he, whatever he said was wrong. You can do that. Um, but it just, even before I was in ministry, maybe I've had a heart of a pastor a long time, but it just amazes me how our own agendas and would, get, would rise to such importance that we lose sight of somebody that... He said, well, I can't see they're in, they're, they're, they're in there. Well, maybe you need to be more aware of our circumstances. But at any rate, these guys were not going to be denied. I love how hard they were willing to work to bring someone... To Jesus. So they go up on the roof. Now you say, what do you mean, why'd they go on the roof? Well, back in that day, a lot of the houses had more of a flat kind of roof and there usually was stairs leading up to the roof because in the evenings, the, the, the breeze would go across the city versus if you were down with all the other buildings, you didn't kind of get that breeze. So people would go to the roofs on the evenings. So it was a fairly common thing. This is not anything unusual. And this is where my title came uh, through the faith, through the roof faith. And these guys had it. And uh, after they carry the guy up the stairs, we don't know how big the guy was. Could be a big guy, could be I don't know, but they carried him up the stairs, you know, um, got him up there, and, and then they, they break through the roof in Mark chapter 2. In Mark's account, Mark says they broke it up. <laughs> like, I got like that, you know, broke up the roof. Yeah, <laughs> they get up there. And, and, I, and I thought to myself, you know, um, if this was Peter's house, <laughs> and here's Jesus teaching along now of course he's the Lord you know I guess if, if he wanted to know what was, I'm sure he did he, he, but all of a sudden you know these roofs in that day were made of thatch and some wood and different you know I've read different art things about different people think it's made up of different you know material but bottom line it was a natural kind of roof and you know you can't make a hole that's only like four inches around you know to get a man down through on, on his lazy boy it's going to take you got to have a pretty good size opening right but you imagine Jesus teaching along, and just like on Sunday morning, you know, it's, everybody's listening, you know, and we're in church service, and can you imagine if all of a sudden we hear that, you know, which we did Sunday morning, by the way. Good things happened after we heard the wonderful noise, you know. Um, I, it was pretty good, Matt. We could hear it clearly in here if you want to know. If you hammer drill on the outside of the building, we can hear it. Um, yeah, you got a bigger drill than that. Yeah, I know. You're the guy that came in the parking lot with a big flamethrower to seal the parking lot. You know, you you yeah, you got you got stuff. Um and um but they cut this giant hole and you imagine they're in there and Jesus is teaching long, and all of a sudden they're hearing this these noise on the roof, and all of a sudden there's debris starting to fall down, you know? Anybody had to replace their roof lately? I know the Swaffords have. Was that that was easy, wasn't it? Um, that's a little sarcasm there, but you know, they're that's an expensive thing. I'm imagining even still, you know, culture to culture, it probably wouldn't a great thing and I imagine Peters down there going, "Hey! Hey!" <laughs> that's my roof i just had that done just got the insurance claim on it you know if i have to file another one my rates are going to go up you know um and not to mention that peter's sitting there going you know all this is starting to happen and jesus is teaching and peter's going can i do i interrupt the lord he's in the middle of his sermon and he's teaching these these pharisees that need to hear the truth of the word how jesus is the messiah and all of a sudden what what in the world is going on you know, sometimes sermon interruptions are an interesting thing. Um, one of my favorites is, uh, actually, I wasn't preaching at, the, at that moment, but it was our, one of our first few years. And since Doug is back there, uh, I'm going to tell a Stanley story. Um, his son, Jason, was in the nursery and got out of the nursery. It was Easter Sunday morning, and the choir is singing something, and he flings that door open in the back door. <laughs> and he comes tearing down the aisle, man. It was it was awesome. And I can see all the choir members up here singing, ah, and I can see my wife's eyes. You know? you know how the wife talks to you with the eyes, you know? Huh, you know? And I said, what, 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 did, what? Am I doing something, you know? And all of a sudden, I can hear, I can hear Jason coming, and I look around there, and I was, I was sitting right over here, and he came down this side, and, and I looked over there, and, and I said, hey, Jason, what you doing? <laughs> and you know, the great thing was, I, I'm so thankful um, to, and privileged to be a pastor that knows our kids. That I'm not, I'm not a stranger. I grew up in a season in independent Baptist mindset that, you know, and this wasn't totally on the, I guess, but it, the, the pastor was like untouchable, you know. I had no idea what kind of person he really was, you know. But our kids, they know, so I was so thankful that he was very comfortable with me, and he just, he said, want to talk to my mom. She was up here singing. <laughs> I said, well, she's singing right now. How about if you sit right here with me? And he just plopped right down there with me, and we went on with the service. But, you know, I've learned that sometimes the things that we consider interruptions in our lives are the point where God wants to do something tremendous. But instead, we see it as an interruption. You see, in verse number 20, and we'll stop here for tonight because you need some prayer time. The Bible says, and when he saw their faith, he said unto them, man, thy sins sins are forgiven thee. Jesus doesn't see this as an interruption. He was not offended. You know, I remember growing up in some churches where pastors, and I used to just, and y'all know, I, I, unless somebody creates an, an adversarial issue, then my type A may or may not come out. But you ever know those pastors that, that just seem to delight in calling people down from the pulpit? Just, I have very little patience with that, um, and sometimes you guys, as the congregation, are going to have to zone in and overcome some distractions. And you don't understand all the time why somebody's in a situation that they're in, and um, yeah, sometimes we just we let interruptions get us all flustered. And instead, what Jesus saw was a great faith. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, let me give you an example. Maybe there's a a single mom that's bringing a couple kids, and the kids are really unruly. You know, you have no idea that maybe the biggest demonstration of faith that that mom has made was to get herself out of bed, to get clothes on those kids, and to come into a public church place. Now, I know that if kids are misbehaving... You know, what I love about our ministry, like this happened Sunday as well, you know, the the kids ended up out front a little earlier than we got out there, and I remember coming out right before Ben and Matt gave me my marching orders, what I'm supposed to do. But I looked over there, and Drew and Savannah had all the kids down in a circle, and they were basically playing some kind of duck-duck goose or something. You know, they, they took the situation, didn't go totally the way it was planned, and they just handled it. And I appreciate when you all do that. See, Jesus saw great faith. Now it's interesting. nothing is really said about the faith of the paralyzed man. We're going we're gonna to talk about that in the next week. Some people think when Jesus said he saw their faith, that the, the antecedent is all five of the guys, and I think Greek-wise, I think he has more in mind, the four, but we're going to consider that more as we go on the rest of the story. We'll get to that. But when Jesus sees this man lying in front of him and he sees the faith, um, the normal thing Jesus would do right here is heal him. That's what he had done pretty much every other time that's recorded up to this point. But not this time. Instead, he begins by talking, addressing the man. He says man or anthropos in the Greek. And he recognizes the man's humanity. And then Jesus, I put my notes, brought the house down with his next words. And now that you know who the crowd is, you talk about courage in the pulpit. Jesus says, thy sins are forgiven thee. Now, yes, what I've always understood from my Western perspective is when Jesus states the fact that he had the authority to forgive sins is a big deal. Just saying that, I understand that that's a, that's a big deal. You know, they went, ooh, you know, and most of the time that's the, that's the foundation we interpret the rest of the story. But tonight I want to show you in closing here the Jewish perspective. Uh, it's, it's amazing. A matter of fact, I like to look through several of my more Western-minded commentaries, and none of them, none of them share the Viewpoint from the Jewish perspective that Dr. Frutenbaum does. You won't find it. Um, Remember, Jesus has been teaching. More, more, than likely with that crowd he was teaching the Torah. More than likely Jesus would have been speaking in Hebrew. When Jesus says thy sins are forgiven thee, it's significant that this phrase is in the passive voice. Now if you know, remember in, in English we have passive and active voice. Active is when the subject does the acting. Passive is when the, when the subject receives the action. And this is passive voice. And you say oh, what's the big deal? Well first off I would say isn't it great When you look at that phrase, thy sins are forgiven thee, that sins is a subject and the forgiveness is acting upon the sins. Aren't you glad that God's forgiveness acted upon your sins? That's good teaching right there. I'm out of time, so I'm going to move on, but that's good. Um, Our sins are forgiven, forgiveness wins. Now, what's significant is when you consider the Hebrew Bible... I did not know this. I would not know this. I'm not a Hebrew scholar like Dr. Frutenbaum is, Um, but there's only one section in the Hebrew Bible where the passive voice, your sins are forgiven, is used. Only one place. It's found in Leviticus chapters 4 through 6. And the content of these chapters is atonement and how blood sacrifice was necessary for the atonement of sins. Hmm. <laughs> Matter of fact, it says, quote, for the remission of sin. Now, I'm, like I did Sunday morning, if you want to further study, Leviticus 4.20... 426, 431, 435, chapter 5, verse 10, verse 13, verse 16, verse 18, and chapter 6, verse 7 all give this example of this passive voice use of this exact phrase. Maybe that's what Jesus was teaching out of the whole time, I don't know. But when Jesus says, thy sins are forgiven thee, and the passive voice in the, in the Hebrew would have been the exact same phrase, He's quoting and using a phrase that only God could use. (laughs) That's why, as we read the rest of the story, you understand why they responded the way that they did. Fascinating, isn't it? You know, that's why whenever you have a pseudo-intellectual that tells you that Jesus never really claimed to be God, once again... Oh, they just have no clue. He said it over and over and over again. Amen, amen. amen. Good stuff tonight. Um, appreciate you tuning in, and uh, thank you for those of you watching online. We will see you, Lord willing, again on uh, Sunday morning for our live stream. Please uh, tune in, and we'll see you later. Over and out. And uh, Pastor Danny, you.